Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every once in a while, it, it sinks in. You know, if I, had I not walked down there that day, uh, it may not ever have been found, you know. Uh, they, would never, they would never have known where she was or what happened to her. That was Bob Gorman, who 40 years ago, while a 19-year-old, stumbled upon a grisly discovery near a pond in Deltona, the skull of a 12-year-old girl. It had been placed inside a paint can. The person responsible for killing and beheading that girl has never been arrested. That story is coming up on Sun Crime State. I'm Tony Holt, crime reporter with the Daytona Beach News Journal. Welcome to Sun Crime State, a weekly podcast that takes an in-depth look at Florida's biggest crime stories of the past and present. In this episode, I'll discuss the two sexual assaults that occurred eight days apart in the Daytona Beach area. In both cases, the women were struck violently by an unknown assailant and raped. And in each case, the attacker got away. Authorities still do not know whether the crimes were committed by the same suspect, but they haven't ruled it out. Later, I'll discuss the kidnapping and murder of 12-year-old Carol Lynn Sullivan, who 40 years ago this week was abducted from her Osteen area bus stop and murdered. Her skull was found 12 days later inside a paint can near a pond in Deltona, about two and a half miles west of the victim's bus stop. Rumors have swirled for years that Sullivan was the victim of a serial killer. My guest for that segment will be Volusia County Sheriff's cold case detective Steve White, as well as Bob Gorman, the man who found Sullivan's skull. Coming up, a story of two South Florida lawmen who have been grouped in with the very people they had spent their careers putting behind bars. And one of the great things about being the chief of police of Biscayne Park is that we are truly a family here. A family who works together and is joined by one common cause, which is the protection of life and property for the residents of the village of Biscayne Park. This year, as we stand, we have a 100% clearance rate on burglary cases in the village of Biscayne Park. This is the first time that I've never, ever known that to happen in any department that I've ever been in. He's a great part of the reason. That was a speech that former Biscayne Park Police Chief Raimondo Atesiano gave to town leaders bragging about his department's 100% clearance rate on burglaries. He introduced one of his officers, Raul Fernandez, as one of the men who played a part in that perfect score, and both were showered with applause. It appears it was all a lie. Atisiano admitted on Friday, according to the Miami Herald, that he directed three of his police officers, one of them being Fernandez, 
to pin several unsolved home burglaries and vehicle break-ins to three innocent people. He did so, he said, to make the public believe his agency had cleared every case. The 52-year-old ex-chief pleaded guilty to a conspiracy charge of depriving the three suspects of their civil rights. All three of those male suspects were black, according to the Herald. Biscayne Park is located in Miami-Dade County, and it sits just west of Biscayne Bay and just south of North Miami. Aticiano was scheduled to stand trial Monday in federal court, but his attorney negotiated a plea agreement with the U.S. Attorney's Office, which led to Friday's guilty plea. He is scheduled to be sentenced November 27th. He faces up to 10 years in prison, but he is expected to get much less than that. Fernandez, the man the chief had introduced to city leaders five years ago, had already admitted to authorities that he and another officer had falsified the arrest affidavits for a 16-year-old black suspect. They linked him to four unsolved break-ins that took place in the spring of 2013. The Herald reported that a Tiziano told the officers that he wanted them to unlawfully arrest the teen, knowing there was no evidence to tie him to the crimes. The charges against the teen were dropped after the state attorney's office in Miami-Dade noticed the four arrest affidavits all used similar and vague language. Earlier this year, another Biscayne Park police officer came forward alleging that Aticiano ordered him to falsify arrest reports against other suspects. Aticiano resigned from his job in 2014. He had previously worked as an officer for Sunny Isles Beach, Hialeah, and Miami-Dade County Corrections. In other news from South Florida, a Miami-Dade police lieutenant was arrested Thursday on allegations he had molested an underage girl during the course of two years. 44-year-old Braulio Gonzalez had his first court appearance Friday. So I, I am ordering you to stay away from the victim, okay? No contact with the victim. That was Circuit Court Judge Renatha Francis telling Gonzalez he was disallowed from contacting the girl. Francis also ordered Gonzalez to remain behind bars until a special hearing could be scheduled to determine whether he may be released on bail prior to his trial. Gonzalez is charged with lewd and lascivious molestation and armed kidnapping. Here is Brandon Beyer, a reporter with WSVN 7 News, a Fox affiliate in Miami, giving details of what was in the arrest report. The arrest report says the victim explained that between the ages of 8 and 10 years old, the defendant fondled her and went on to say the victim further disclosed that the defendant forced her to touch him inappropriately. The abuse, according to the Herald, reportedly ended in 2013, but authorities were contacted after the girl told a psychologist what she had endured. That psychologist notified the Florida Department of Children and Families, and that agency reported it to detectives. Gonzalez has been with the agency since 1999. Before that, he served as a police officer in Hialeah. 
He was most recently assigned to the Miami-Dade Police Special Response Team, which is called upon to handle hostage situations and other dangerous calls. He has been suspended with pay, and he'll stop getting paid when prosecutors file formal charges at his arraignment. Gonzalez is the fourth Miami-Dade police officer to be arrested during the past month. In one case, an officer was charged after allegedly kicking a handcuffed suspect. Two others were arrested on fraud-related charges. Coming up, I'll discuss the investigation into two rapes that occurred earlier this month in and around Daytona Beach. You know, in eight days, we've had two attacks on the beach. Are they related? In some circumstances, it looks that way. We don't have the forensic evidence together to to tie it and say conclusively they're linked. But the important thing is, in my time here, uh, this this is something we don't see. That was Volusia County Sheriff Mike Chitwood talking about the two rapes that have been reported on Volusia County beaches. The first took place the morning of August 31st near the El Portal Beach approach near Daytona Beach Shores. The second occurred six miles north the morning of September 8th near the Seabreeze Boulevard approach in Daytona. During the first attack, a 68-year-old woman was walking along the beach by herself between 5.30 and 6 a.m. Her attacker came up from behind and struck her in the face, knocking her unconscious. When she woke up, the man was gone, and her clothes were missing from the waist down. Authorities said she reported the incident to the Daytona Beach Shores Department of Public Safety and was transported to Halifax Health Medical Center. While at the hospital, it was disclosed to her that she had been sexually battered. The case was turned over to the Volusia County Sheriff's Office. Deputies said the woman also suffered a broken jaw. Here is Chitwood describing what happened to the second victim during a media conference on September 8th. Unfortunately, last night at around 1 o'clock in the morning, 33-year-old woman walking on A1A meets a male, uh, which he describes as either Hispanic or black, she's not sure. Uh, they engage in a conversation, and she ends up on the beach approach with him at 600 North A1A. He eventually beats the living crap out of her, severe facial injuries, and sexually assaults her. During the first incident, the woman apparently did not see her attacker coming. In the second incident, according to the sheriff's office, the woman willingly walked to the beach with a stranger who waited until they were in a dark place before attacking her. Here is Chitwood going into more detail about that attack. Now this one is a little bit different because this one, uh, our victim this morning, early this morning, has a conversation with him and there is an agreement to have a sexual relationship on the beach where our first attack, there is no, nothing said whatsoever. She is just uh, blindsided and knocked unconscious and sexually assaulted. During the September 8th incident, the victim was walking by herself on State Road A1A near Seabreeze when the male stranger approached her and asked for a cigarette. Deputies said the two spoke for a while and then agreed to have sex on the beach. The stranger agreed to pay the woman in exchange for sex. It was after they got to the beach that the man attacked her. He fled and then she ran back onto the highway 
and flagged down a Daytona Beach police officer. Both of the women live locally, according to the sheriff's office. The second victim told detectives she thought she may have seen her attacker around town previously, but she didn't know him. Sheriff's deputies, as well as officers with the Daytona Beach Police, Daytona Beach Shores Public Safety, and Volusia County Beach Safety and Ocean Rescue, were expected to beef up patrols along the shore. Chitwood advised women not to walk alone at night on the beach. You have to remember that there are members of our society that are looking for a moment to strike when you're at your most vulnerable position. And, you know, we see it during spring break. Uh, we see it all the time. And, and, that, and the message is for women to be on guard. Don't be alone. You know, have your friends with you. And don't put yourself in a position to allow one of these predators to take advantage of you. Anyone with information is urged to call Crime Stoppers of Northeast Florida at 1-888-277-TIPS. That's 1-888-277-TIPS. Coming up, the story about the slaying of Carolyn Sullivan, who was kidnapped and killed 40 years ago this week. When I was talking to Carol's brother, he told me that his mother never got over it and, in fact, to this day, refuses to accept that her daughter is deceased. It's causing her great uh, stress. That was Volusia County Sheriff's cold case detective Steve White describing to me how the mother of Carol Lynn Sullivan still suffers great anguish 40 years after her 12-year-old daughter was abducted from her secluded bus stop near Osteen, a rural community in West Volusia County. Carol was last seen around 6.50 a.m., September 20th, 1978. Her skull was found 12 days later, more than two miles west of her stop, at the corner of Cortland and Doyle Roads. Her killer has never been identified. Carol had moved with her parents and two brothers to the area from neighboring Seminole County just two months earlier. Even today, Osteen is a remote area. It's a short distance east of Lake Monroe, a favorite destination for boaters and campers. Carol was two days from turning 13. She was a student at Deltona Junior High School. When the bus driver pulled up to her stop that morning, she wasn't there. When she failed to appear for her first two classes, the school called home. Carol's mother, Joanne, answered the phone. After she was told that her daughter had failed to show up for her first two periods, Joanne called her husband at work. Herbert Sullivan called police and then left work to go look for his daughter. He drove to Osteen and started searching. He was joined by sheriff's deputies, some of whom showed up on horseback. Well, initially it was just treated as a missing persons case. The department utilized some resources, the uh, patrol motors, some of the river and ranch people with their 4x4s began a search of the area, and then eventually they got uh, local residents to volunteer to search fields and pastures. That went on for a couple days. A short story appeared the next day in the Daytona Beach News Journal. 
The article stated that several deputies and neighbors were combing over the open fields and searching the thick woods in proximity to the bus stop, and they kept searching until sundown. The same article stated that a local pastor had reported seeing a man hiding in a grove near a bus stop in Osteen. He told deputies what he saw, but nothing came of it. The search continued the following day. Back in the late 70s, that was very rural, and there was a lot of pasture land out there. Uh, separated by wooded patches, so they would uh, go through the pastures in a line looking for any clues, maybe a book bag or piece of paper, piece of clothing. They were looking for anything out of place in that area. They got the horses out there for some of the larger areas, and they, the day that she was reported missing obviously was the most intense, and then the next day on, a lot of the volunteers came out. I think they had somewhere upward of 50 volunteers assisting the deputies in the search. A tracking dog did pick up a scent, but it didn't lead anywhere. Detectives reached out to Carol's friends in Longwood, where she previously lived, but that generated no clues. Carol was 4 feet 11 inches tall and weighed 80 pounds. She was last seen wearing a bright green shirt, blue jeans, and red and blue tennis shoes. Carol's mother used to always insist on escorting her daughter to the bus stop. But on the morning of September 20th, Carol told her mother she was being overly protective. Joanne gave in to her daughter's wishes and let her walk to the bus stop herself. Carol's mother was saddled with guilt after that. She sat next to her phone during the next 12 days. She openly admitted to her reporter that she was frantic and that prayer was the only thing holding her together. Detectives always thought it was unlikely that Carol had run away. Flyers were distributed around the area, showing the girl standing beside a car with her clarinet. In large letters at the bottom, the flyer stated, Possible Foul Play. On October 2nd, 19-year-old Bob Gorman was exploring the area and decided to check out the nearby pond. Gorman was a South Jersey native who lived in various cold-weather places, from Ontario, Canada to Rochester, New York. His parents were building a house in the Deltona area, and he was eager to see some Florida wildlife. I was told that every pond and lake in Florida has an alligator in it, and I'd never seen one yet. So I kept seeing this lake when I drive by it with a pathway going down to it. So I stopped the one day on my way to my parents' house and parked my car on the side of the road and walked to about, I, I, to my memory, probably maybe... Uh, 30 to 50 yards down to the pond. It was kind of down a hill. And on my walk there, I noticed uh, off to my left, uh, 10, 15 feet away from the little trail I was on, I saw something in the grass there, like a paint can, kind of suspended in the tall grass, and it kind of drew my attention. But I walked down to the lake and looked for a little while. On my way back up, I walked over and inspected it, picked it up. And that's when I saw what I was sure was a human skull inside. Gorman may have been new to Florida wildlife, but he was not new to the outdoors. What he saw inside that can was a human skull. He knew it wasn't the skull of some animal. I was remarkably calm, really. I set it back down, and I had enough sense to kind of backtrack through my own steps. I back up to my car. Of course, this was way before cell phone times. 
So I drove to uh, up to the corner of Normandy and Providence Boulevard to the Cumberland Farms grocery store there and uh, and used the phone there to call the police. Of course, it was before 911, so I actually had to get the phone number to call the police department, and they sent somebody out. And- Gorman told the responding deputy what he had found. He followed him to the pond. And that deputy was skeptical at first that any human remains would turn up in those woods. No, I, he wasn't rude or anything. He was just, you know, I guess they get a lot of calls where people find bones and stuff. and think it's a human bone. It turns out to be a cow bone or something. But I'm kind of a country boy, and I knew it wasn't a cow bone. Plus, you know, cows don't normally have fillings and such on them, and their heads aren't normally stuffed into a paint can. As soon as he saw it, the deputy realized Gorman was right. It was clearly a human skull. The stench of decay was still present, and fire ants were crawling in and out of the can. Pretty much all of the flesh was gone. Gorman said there may have been a little bit of hair remaining, but nothing else other than bone. Due to the absence of any flesh, detectives initially ruled out the possibility that the skull was that of Carolyn Sullivan's. Gorman, who hung around the scene for a while, overheard deputies talking about it. I, I overheard the conversation. Uh, they were standing close to me. They were talking about a, a girl that had been missing from the a bus stop a couple weeks earlier and that they were, that the, we need to contact her parents because this was not her. This skull was in, uh, it was too decomposed for just being from two weeks. And they wanted to contact, so if they heard something on the news that the, that the parents wouldn't be, would know that it's not their daughter. So they were, they mistakenly, and then I just contacted the parents. I don't know if they did or not and told them that it wasn't their daughter, but a couple weeks later, we all found out it was. A short article in the News Journal stated that the age and deterioration of the skull led investigators to conclude that it wasn't related to Sullivan's disappearance. Here again is Detective Steve White. There was a a report by one of the medical examiners, um, I think it was the University of Florida, that looked at it and said that there was not enough time had passed from when the victim went missing to when the discovery of the skull for normal decomposition. But on November 8th, more than five weeks after the skull was found, then Volusia County Sheriff Ed Duff announced to the media that the skull was Carol Lynn Sullivan's. The positive identification came from an Orlando forensic dentist who confirmed the match. Duff told the News Journal that Carol was, quote, very obviously abducted, probably mutilated, even dissected. Duff added that while detectives were not devoid of clues, there was little evidence to work with at that time. To this day, it remains a mystery how Carol's killer or killers removed all that tissue from her skull. It was never determined exactly how it was defleshed. There are several methods available, uh, chemical, boiling. Of course, they could also have used an instrument, but it would have left a lot of tool marks to do that. They speculated on it, but it was never actually determined how it was done specifically. The condition of the skull did indicate that Carol was subjected to extreme violence. Well, Dr. Maple of the University of Florida 
said um, also noted that there was a hard blow under the right jaw that dislocated the bone and uh, created some fractures and that a knife was used to cut the head off based on some tool marks that he saw at the base of the skull but they you're correct they never said specifically this is the method that was used to deflesh the skull he's telling us that at some point she took a blow to the underneath the right part of her jaw the right side of her jaw and that dislocated the bones above the jaw the right side of the nose there was some um, damage to the skull there whether or not that was the cause of death we can't say bob gorman who for years has run a car repair shop in DeBerry, told me he was deeply dismayed when he heard the news that the skull he found was that of a 12-year-old girl who was kidnapped just 12 days earlier. He got emotional about it with me during our interview last week. Uh, That's what had bothered me. Uh, I didn't... uh... Excuse me. Take all the time you need. Yeah, but up to that point, it was just you know, could have been anything. Could have been a, there's there's a uh, a uh, African American uh, uh, old uh, cemetery apparently behind the campground there out in the woods, and uh, that, had been, that had been vandalized and such over the years, and and uh, so they you know at that point they didn't know if it was a skull or something from there and I didn't know either and uh so when I found out it was you know a young girl that it just got was just missing a couple weeks earlier yeah it's it's it sunk in then at that point and uh and it's been on my mind ever since in a 2002 interview with the Orlando Sentinel Gorman said he'd had many sleepless nights he also said he felt a connection with the case and he still feels that to this day He told me he has doubts that it will ever be solved. The Carol Lynn Sullivan cold case remains one of the most disturbing unsolved murder cases in Central Florida. Many people have theorized that her murder was the work of a serial killer, and many detectives have looked into that possibility. A book came out years ago titled Invisible Killer, The Monster Behind the Mask. The authors of that book, Diana Montaigne and Sean Robbins, connected the Sullivan murder to admitted serial killer Charlie Brandt. The authors also linked Brandt to two other Florida murders, and those other two victims had their hearts removed, just like Sullivan, and they too had been decapitated. Brandt was born in Connecticut. When he was 12 or 13, his family moved to Fort Wayne, Indiana. In January 1971, not long after the family moved, Brandt walked into the master bathroom where his father was shaving and his pregnant mother was taking a bath. He shot them both, killing his mother and critically injuring his father. He confronted his sister and tried to shoot her, but his gun jammed. He was arrested after he ran to a neighbor's house. Indiana law stated that a 13-year-old couldn't go to prison for murder, so Brandt lived for a year at a state hospital and was released. His family relocated to Florida, and he settled in the Keys. 
In September 2004, Brand and his wife, Terry, evacuated their home due to Hurricane Ivan, and they wound up staying with Terry's niece, Michelle Jones, who lived outside Orlando. It was during that stay that Brandt fatally stabbed Terry, but what he did to his niece was even worse. Jones had been decapitated and disemboweled. Her heart and other organs were removed from her body, and her head was placed next to her body. Brandt had used kitchen knives to mutilate the body. Brandt ended the carnage that day by hanging himself in the garage. Several news reports also connected Brandt to the 1989 murder of Sherry Parashow, who was found mutilated and dead near Brandt's home. The Monroe County Sheriff's Office reportedly closed that case in 2006, concluding that Brandt was the killer. I talked to White about whether Brandt was ever a suspect in the Sullivan murder. He mostly was um, cutting the throat of women. He took a heart in one of them down in Pine Key in 1989. He was linked to some in Miami in 94. None of his were dismembered in this fashion, though. White also told me that Carol Sullivan's brother was particularly distraught over the book, which strongly suggested that Brandt was his sister's killer. White said the authors of the book never consulted with him or anyone else at the sheriff's office. I tried contacting both Montaigne and Robbins last week, but never heard back from them. I also mentioned the name Otis Toole to White. Toole was the lead suspect in the 1981 murder of Adam Walsh, who was killed and decapitated in Hollywood, Florida. His head was found floating in a canal. Toole confessed to the crime twice, but recanted. He died in 1996, but authorities in 2008 officially named Toole as the likely killer of Adam Walsh. Toole and his companion, Henry Lee Lucas, were linked to other murders. The latter was notorious for confessing to many more killings than he actually committed. But authorities always believed that Toole was a serial killer. Most of his victims were male. White again told me that investigators looked into Toole, but couldn't link him to the Sullivan murder. The same went for Lucas. But detectives were able to place him and Toole in proximity to Volusia County at the time of the killing. However, Lucas, who had a penchant for confessing to murders, even to those he did not commit, always insisted he had nothing to do with Sullivan's slaying. He denied having involvement with uh, Carol Sullivan. We know he was in the area. He claims he was working on roofs. He was a roofer in the area working for a company out of Jacksonville. Claimed one homicide in Daytona, but it was research showed nothing that matched his claims, so it was not verified. But we uh, did put him in the area in the time frame. There was also another detail to this that pretty much discounts Toole and Lucas. The Orlando Sentinel reported that the pair had not met each other until five months after Carol Lynn Sullivan was killed. 
At the start of the investigation, investigators did lock in on one person of interest, a Deltona truck driver who was arrested in October 1978 and charged with sexual battery and lewd and lascivious acts in the presence of children, was questioned by detectives. Findings were even presented to prosecutors, but the case never moved forward and the man's name was never released to the media. The rest of Carol Lynn Sullivan's remains were never found in spite of several searches. There were a couple of pieces of evidence at the scene that investigators were able to work with. The paint inside that can containing Carol Sullivan's skull was a specialty paint that body shops use for automobiles. Additionally, something else was found nearby that also contained auto paint. There was a piece of duct tape found in the area that had a piece of automotive paint, not the same type. The can was enamel and the duct tape had acrylic. Uh, both automotive type paints, while they were not a match for each other, uh, I'm just, it, it struck me odd that there's two pieces of evidence that have automotive paint on it. So possibly someone involved in this case was involved in auto painting. White told me the Sullivan case likely won't be solved until someone who knows something comes forward. There are no lead suspects at the moment, and there doesn't appear to be any forensic evidence to go on. Everyone at the cold case squad at the sheriff's office is familiar with this case. Investigators keep looking into it in the hopes that something could be jarred loose. Forty years is a long time. But as you heard White say at the beginning of this segment, a mother's grief lasts forever. As does the hope that this case can finally be closed with an arrest or a declaration of who killed Carol Lynn Sullivan. Because it's a child, I think our society looks at them as innocent and that things like this should not befall our children. Our children should be able to be free to go to school without fear, without threat of bodily violence or death. And when a child is murdered, it shakes the foundation of society because of their innocence. Anyone with information about this case is urged to call Crime Stoppers at 1-888-277-TIPS. Thank you for listening. I'm on vacation this week, so the next new episode of Sun Crime State will be released on October 1st. Join us then. You can find Tony on Twitter at TonyCrimeWriter or email him at Tony.Holt at News-JRNL.com. Be sure to rate us on iTunes. Sun Crime State is recorded by Tony Holt and produced by Chris Bridges for the Daytona Beach News Journal. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of... Uh human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.